The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Lord willing, we will finish out chapter 15 of Exodus this morning. Uh, We'll look at verses 22 through 27. We've been walking through verse by verse uh, this book, and uh, we come today um, to find the Israelites on the other side of the Red Sea, uh, having just sang a song of praise to God delivering them. They have just been delivered out of Egypt. Their enemy has just been defeated. And they sing this song. But now, three days later, we see them in the wilderness. And their song has gone away. And their song has turned to grumbling. And uh, it, it is a starkly different picture than what we saw the last time we were in Exodus together. So my question to you is this, before we look at the text, what happened? How could a a group of people been saved and just had no other response other than to sing to God, just frozen in their tracks on the shores of the Red Sea, singing to God, and three days later, they're grumbling against God's servant? What happens? Well, the answer is life in the wilderness happens. Life in the wilderness comes and, and presses in and causes them to forget their salvation. And I want us to look at this uh, together today, and, and I want to ask this question. The, the, the question that I want to answer, hopefully, today is, what comes after salvation? For so many people, you sit and, and uh, you've made a profession of faith in Christ, and now you're in church, and you, you have this question of, what now? Am I supposed to just sit and wait out the days and wait for Jesus to come again? What now? Am I supposed to be doing something else? Does God have something else for me to be doing? If I'm saved, then there has to be something else. What do I do now? That's the question that I want to answer today is what comes after salvation. So if you will, look with me at verse 22 of Exodus 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. I want to show you just a few things in this passage today about what's next, what comes after salvation. And before we really get into the meat of that, the first point is this. God meets us where we are, but thank God he refuses to leave us there. God refuses to leave us where we are. In verse 22, as we looked at, as I read through that, it seems simple and we would just run right by it, but there's We're told there that Moses made the Israelites leave. 
that he made them set out from the Red Sea. We get the picture, we, we get the sense that Israel, if it were left up to them, would have stayed right there. I mean, why not? There's no longer an army bearing down on them. There's no more danger. They, they've been delivered. It was a glorious place. Don't you remember how we sang, Moses? Why not just stay right here, Moses? But Moses makes them set out. Perhaps, uh, maybe they, they thought they would just stay right there. Or they did know that God had promised them a land, promised to send them and take them into Canaan. So maybe if they weren't really wanting to stay right there, maybe they thought they would just cruise right on into Canaan without any trouble. I mean, the text here says that he made Israel set out from the Red Sea into the wilderness of Shur. Philip Graham Ryken says the promised land could only be reached by the wilderness. And maybe that's what they're pushing back on. Maybe they either want to just stay right there or they just want to go straight to Canaan. They don't want to have to go into the wilderness. But God has other plans. He will take them to the promised land, but he will only get them there through the wilderness. And I would say to you this morning, church, that without inferring too much that's not in the text, I think we're tempted in the same way. That we're tempted to say, God, why can't we just stay right here? I mean, think back. Many of you think back on the moment you were saved if you're a Christian in the room today. For many of you, it was an incredible event. It was glorious. For others of you, it was not that big a deal, but you know you're saved. I mean, you know it's a big deal in the eyes of God, but it came on so slowly because Perhaps maybe you grew up in a church, you were raised in a church, and you just sort of found yourself just sort of walking into the gospel as a natural path. But regardless, if, you, if salvation, the gospel, became good news to you in a lackluster way, or whether it came to you in this miraculous knock you off of your donkey, blind you with light kind of way, the answer, I mean, the, the reality is for most of us, we would say, God, why can't we just stay right here? Why can't we just, is, is this not enough, God? Some people ask the question, isn't it enough that, that I'm a Christian, that I'm saved, that my sins have been forgiven? Isn't that enough? And the answer for your salvation is yes. It's absolutely enough. For your justification, it is enough that Jesus has paid for your sins and you're trusting in him alone. But for your sanctification, it's not enough. It's, it's not enough. God invites us to go. He intends so much more for us than to just stay right there at that moment. I've experienced very few moments of real, what I call revival, but I have been in a few where the Spirit of God seemed to just fall from heaven and, and there was repentance of sin and there was conviction and people were being saved. And, and I, I can remember those times with that church and think, I want it to be this way all the time. Why can't we just stay right here? Let's, nobody go home. Let's just sing another song and let's just prolong this thing. But nevertheless, you have to leave from there. Everyone who's ever been to youth camp in the summer knows that, that you can come come to a high place in your walk with the Lord at camp and everything feels so wonderful and you feel like, why can't it just stay like this? But the reality is you go back home and you walk out into the wilderness. 
God never meant for us to only stay right there. He intends so much more for us, more than just justification. That would be enough if if all that were in mind were our salvation. He declares us right with him by forgiving our sin, makes us acceptable in God's sight. But God intends so much more for us. As I was thinking through this, I, I couldn't help but to think about my own level of depravity. And, and there's, there are some particular stories in the Bible that, that I feel a connection with. You ever have any of those stories? You just feel a connection with that story. One of those stories I think I have romanticized, and maybe you have as well, is the story of the thief on the cross. Anybody have a, a particular connection to the thief on the cross? Okay, I'm it. That's it. I'm alone in that. But, but I have. Ever since I've heard that, I've thought, you know, here's a guy who lived his life in a sinful, godless way, but yet in the end, in the moments before he was going to die, met the Lord, and the Lord promised to take him to paradise. He was saved even though he lived how he wanted to live. And I'll be honest with you, at some gut level depravity of my soul, there is something in me that wants to walk with a foot in both sides of the world. That I, I want to be able to enjoy the world and all that it has to offer and, and to pursue those, those things that will leave me empty in the end, but in the moment, they are fun. But then the spirit within me calls me back and convicts me and says, those things are worthless. I'm reminded of verses of scripture. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And so at the same time, I'm called back and I'm saying, no, the, the Godward life is the life that I must pursue. But there's something, and maybe I'm out there on a limb by myself and you all don't experience this, but at a gut level depravity of my soul, there's something in me that wants to enjoy both. There's this war within me, and I think that's why I connect with this story. But God intends so much more. Even though the thief on the cross never had an opportunity to pursue the Lord, he never had an opportunity to memorize Scripture. He never had an opportunity to be part of a small group. He never had an opportunity to sing songs with other saints. He never had those opportunities, yet he was saved. There's something in that 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 I say, boy, that would be nice. But the reality is, and what I want to show you today, is that God calls us to so much more. More than just being saved and then staying there. God invites us to so much more. He, He invites us to be sanctified. Now, sanctified is just a big church word that means that it, it, when, we're, when we're saved, we're declared right. We're saved from the guilt of sin. But when we're sanctified, it's this lifelong, hard process where we are saved from the power of sin in our lives. Where we, we are delivered from sin's dominion over us day by day by day as we walk with the Lord. God invites us into that to be conformed to his holiness. How many of you, how many times if you're a believer have you thought, why do I continue to struggle with this? Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. We are invited to be conformed to his holiness. But the the bad thing, the, the hard thing about sanctification is that it's not instantaneous like justification is. 
You come to the place where you're a sinner lost without Christ and you see your sin for what it is and you turn from it and beg Christ to forgive you and to be your righteousness. You're saved like that. You're the thief on the cross in that moment and today you will be with him in paradise. But sanctification is hard. Sanctification is lifelong. It's this hard, uphill struggle. One of my favorite books, and if you've not read The Pilgrim's Progress, it is, it is written by John Bunyan. Great book. It's been around for several centuries. And, and, and may still be, I don't know if it still is, but at, at, for many, many centuries, it was the number two best-selling book of all time behind the Bible. If you've not read it, I would encourage you to read it. It's an allegory. It's a story of, of, of a character named Christian who uh, has an evangelist come to him. He, he's saved, and he, he sets out on this journey to go to the celestial city. And there's one particular chapter where he's going up this hard hill. And he, he, he's already been saved, but he comes to the hill. And at the bottom of the hill, there's one path that is straight, but it leads. It's narrow, and it goes up the hill. And then there are these other paths that wind off and they're broad and they look so much easier and he is faced with a choice of which path to take. And Christian takes that narrow path and he begins to go and those that are journeying with him at the bottom look up and they describe him as going from running to walking to literally crawling up this path. And it's a picture of what this Christian life at times is. At times, this Christian life, this sanctified life that God invites us into requires discipline. It requires us to to put our nose to the grindstone and go. It requires us to put blinders on and to tell ourselves we will not go the way of the world. We will not go there And as much as there are times when we want to walk over here in this part of the path, God calls us back. And it's hard. And we must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. I'll be honest with you, I I fail at this so often. I know as a pastor, I shouldn't stand up here and say that to you. Lose all credibility with you. You know, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of, uh, of a shop teacher, you know, having, you know, missing thumb or something like that. But I fail often. But by the grace of God, God doesn't allow me to leave the path. God doesn't allow me, he doesn't allow the believer, the true follower, the true Christian to turn back and walk away. God doesn't leave it up to us completely. He, what this verse tells us is, makes us set out from the Red Sea. We want to stay right there. God, can't we just stay right here? It's awesome here, God. And he makes us set out from the Red Sea into the wilderness. Paul speaks of being saved in 1 Corinthians 1.18 when he said, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing but to, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What, what Paul is pointing to is not justification, this instantaneous declared right. He's pointing to this sanctification, this daily walk. And if Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, can say to you, I'm at times struggling with sin and I'm 
being saved, then we can as well. The ESV study Bible and the notes in the back on the overview of doctrine says this about sanctification. It says, the best evidence of true salvation is not having raised a hand or prayed a prayer or having been baptized or christened. Instead, the true test of an authentic work of God in one's life is sanctification as God continues the moral transformation he began in regeneration. God's sanctifying work is seen in growing Christ-like character, increasing love for God and people and the fruit of the Spirit. A memorable conversion experience may serve as an important reference point, but it's only... It is only the obvious ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in making one more and more like Jesus that gives sufficiently clear indication that a person has been made a new creation in Christ. I don't want to today heap guilt or cause unnecessary doubt on you, but if, if, if there is not ever this desire in you to walk the narrow path, to want to follow the Lord. If there's not in you this ever, this love for God and love for man, if it's not increasing in you, if, if, if you never see the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control, if nobody around you sees those things in you, then maybe the reality is that you're not saved. Because when God saves a person... He saves them completely. And what that means is he saves them here to take them all the way there. And he will do it slowly over time. But these things ought to be present in your life to some degree. We should thank God that he meets us where we are. We should thank him again that he refuses to leave us there. Secondly, from this text... Forgetting our sal- God's salvation in the past leads to grumbling in the present. Forgetting God's salvation in the past leads to grumbling in the present. Verses 22 through 24, they go three days into the wilderness. They find no water. They begin to grumble. How in the world could they forget so easily? We say things like, well, if I'd have been there, I wouldn't have forgotten. I can tell you that right now. If I'd have been there, I'd have still been singing. They might have all been grumbling, but I'd have been singing. And the reality is we think too highly of ourselves. The reality is, if we were there three days into the wilderness, we'd be front of the line, grumbling along with them. Let's not forget that their struggle was real. The Bible here tells us that that the wilderness that they go into is barren and desolate. It's a vast desert with very little resources, very little water at all. In fact, they go three days journey into a desert finding no water at all. I did a little research on this to find out how long can the human body go without water? Let me just tell you the importance of water. The human body can go up to three weeks without food, but not so with water. The body, at least 60% of the adult body is made up of water. Every living cell in the body needs it to keep functioning. Water acts as a a lubricant for our joints. It regulates our body temperature through sweating and, and respiration. It helps to to flush waste from our body. Water produces saliva. Imagine three days in a a desert and your mouth just begins, just just quits making saliva. 
The brain needs it to produce hormones and neurotransmitters. That water is a shock absorber for the brain and the spinal cord. Imagine this journey as they're walking on foot and they're dehydrated severely, no water inside, and just the, the amount of pain that they would begin to feel. Without water, the body can't digest food properly. Water helps to deliver oxygen all over the body. Without it, body cells can't grow, they can't reproduce or even survive. The maximum length of time a person can go without water is in ideal conditions about a week. And and ideal conditions would be at the end of a person's life, maybe in a hospital or at home with with hospice care and, and, and things begin to shut down. They can go about a week or so as they're being cared for there. But in severe conditions where there is no shade, extreme heat, it lessens drastically. In fact, most places, most information I found said that the human body in those type of conditions can only go three days without water. And so here, the the Israelites have traveled into the wilderness, and they're at that threshold. They're three days, and they're miserable, and they're scared. Let's don't forget, let's don't gloss over this as if this is fairy tales or Mother Goose. This is history, God's history given to us. First Corinthians 10 says, given to us so that we might learn from them. This is real. This was a struggle for them. They finally, three days, come through the wilderness to an oasis, a place where it's supposed to have water called Mara, and when they get there, the water's contaminated. It's bitter. They can't drink it. It's filled with minerals and, 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 and salt deposits, and maybe even to the point of being poisoned if they drink it. They can't drink it. So they get there, they think this is our hope, and all of a sudden, their hopes are dashed. And they begin to grumble. And we can understand, rightly so, why they begin to grumble. But here's what I would challenge you with. What are they forgetting? They are forgetting how God saved them. Hadn't they seen after, in, in, uh, in Exodus, I think, chapter 2 toward the end and into 3, and then when he began to, to, to give the, the plagues, hadn't they seen God turn the Nile into blood? This life-giving river that if you look on a, on a map above Egypt and you see it's just green all the way around the Nile, and it goes out and it just gets more and more wilderness from there. They had seen God turn the Nile to blood and then turn it back again. They had just seen God divide the waters of the Red Sea, turn them into a, remember the congealed salad and they walked through the middle? They had just seen this and what they're forgetting is God controls the water supply. That God is more powerful than anything they're up against and and God delivered them through that and, and how could they now think that God would not deliver them from thirst? In the middle of the wilderness, Church, we as believers need to train ourselves. And I use that word intentionally. We've got to train ourselves to remember some things about God. In the middle of the wilderness, when we're in the middle of a, of, of a, of a trying time, of a time of suffering, we must train ourselves to remember that wherever we are, God has providentially led us there. First Peter chapter 1, I've shared this verse before because it, when I found it, it just, just changed the way I see my life. In First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The writer here is saying to us is there are times when God over your life sovereignly finds it necessary to send you into suffering. As I'm walking through this I, I, and, and looking at this, I, I keep thinking, I feel like I'm saying the same thing to you over and over again. I, I, I sometimes wonder, are you going to get tired of hearing God sometimes lead you into suffering and, and wind up just saying, well, all he ever talks about is, is the gospel. All he ever talks about is suffering. But the reality is, God, I believe, is preparing us and wants to prepare you to hear it. That sometimes God will lead you into places. He will lead me into places where it is not convenient. It is not comfortable. I'd rather not be there. I'm afraid. And what I must remember is that wherever I find myself, providentially, God has led me there. The second thing we must remember when we're in the wilderness is that there is nothing greater than God's ability to save. They came to this task of needing water and they forgot God controls the water. And they thought this was going to be their doom. This would be the end of them. And they had forgotten God's ability to save. There's nothing that is greater than God's ability to save If we find ourselves in a situation, in a circumstance where we feel like it is going to be the end, the reality is we're in God's care. And if we find ourselves still there, and if we pray and he will not seem to remove us, then he must see that it is necessary for us to remain there. We need not fear being there. We should not fear that it will somehow become too big for God, that this will be the end of us. Because at that moment, when it becomes that, that big, our God will rescue us out. It doesn't mean that, that he will spare us from death. There have been many Christians throughout history that have followed Christ all the way to the grave. If you go back through church history and you read through the Reformation and, and through all of that history, you see, you know that there have been Christians that have, that have sung hymns on their way to the gallows. They've sung hymns as they were set on fire and burned. God doesn't always spare us from those things, but we must always remember that this life is not final and the only life we have. We we should never be saying things like, well, you only have one life. The reality is we don't only have one life. We have eternal life. And the life that is here is not what we will be. We live right now in an outpost of heaven that is temporary, and if we compare that to eternity, we sing songs like, when we've been there 10,000 years, our songs have just begun. We sing those songs, but do we believe it? I mean, what is 70 or 80 or 90 years in comparison with eternity? In the middle of the wilderness, we must train ourselves to remember God providentially leads us there And he will not come up against anything that he cannot save us from. 
Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary on Exodus said this, The problem at Mara was not the water, bitter though it was, but the bitterness in the hearts of God's people. Bitterness does not come in the outward circumstances, but in the inward response. We are called not to complain, but to believe in the goodness of God, even when he leads us to bitter waters. Third is this. God's grace not only saves us, it also sustains us. God's grace not only saves us, it sustains us as well. In verse 25, Moses cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and it, the water became sweet. Now, how many of you, if you put yourself in this situation, you'd have been so gracious as Moses there? I mean, you've put everything on the line. You've led these people out. Look at all they've seen. And now, three days into the wilderness and they're grumbling and complaining. Would you become an intercessor on their part? You might be tempted to to turn on them and to put them in their place and to just rebuke them and tell them, trust the Lord. But instead, Moses in this moment becomes an intercessor. And we have also been called to be intercessors for one another, to bear one another's burdens. But God's grace not only saves us, it also sustains us. The temptation when we look at verse 25 is, is to begin to look at the tree. This, this piece of wood, or the word is literally tree. And we, we focus on the, on the wood or the tree, and we say, well, what kind of tree was it? Was this some kind of natural remedy that made this bitter water sweet? Was it something in the, in the properties of this particular wood that, that created this chemistry experiment and just made it all better? We, we, we look at the tree and we think, is it symbolic for some other spiritual reality? Is, is this tree here a picture of other trees in, in the Bible? Is it, is it a reminder of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? Is, is it a reminder of the tree of life in Revelation that has leaves for the healing of the nations? Or is it the tree on which Jesus was crucified? Perhaps it's meant to be a number of those things. But more than, than running off and trying to look for symbolism in Scripture, maybe we ought to just simply look at what's plain in the text. The text never tells us any of those things. We can speculate about those things, but the plain teaching of the text is that God is testing them here. That God is teaching them to trust Him. He's teaching them that they should rely on him, that he would supply all of their needs, that he would preserve and sustain them, that he didn't save them now, then to now abandon them in the wilderness. We're guilty of, of this kind of thinking too, that we get in the middle of a situation and we think it's, it's all up to us now and what are we going to do? Let me remind you, God didn't save us to leave us. We sometimes think that the gospel is something only for the beginning. The gospel is sort of the primer. And once we get the gospel, then we move on from the gospel to other things that are more important, that are deeper, that are more meaty and substantial. And we as Christians move on from the gospel and we begin to look at charts and uh, you know, all these book studies and all this. It's been said so many times that the gospel is described as the ABCs of salvation. Tim Keller points out that the gospel is not the ABCs of salvation, but it is the A through Z of salvation. That, that the, the gospel is 
is what we keep coming back to all the time. That we will forevermore, all of our lives, we will continue to come back to the never-ending spring of the well of the gospel. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? God doesn't save us to abandon us. He will see us all the way through. God's grace not only saves us, it also sustains us. It is what we go back to over and over and over again. I've said it before and I'll say it again, that we sometimes treat the gospel as if that's the diving board And then once we're in the pool, we don't need the diving board anymore. But the reality is the gospel is the pool. And we swim in the waters of the gospel. And all throughout your life, when you find yourself in predicaments or in sin, you will constantly be returning to, I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. Without the forgiveness that Christ offers, I am hopeless. Forgive me, Lord. That will be over and over and over again in our lives. Fourth is this. I think it's number four. I'm not sure exactly where I am, but grace-driven effort is the way to oasis in the wilderness. Grace-driven effort is the way to oasis in the wilderness. And here's where I want to camp out for just a little bit. I know we're running close to time, and I'll finish up in just a few minutes, but in verses 25 through 27, the Lord gives them a statute and a set of rules, and he says to them, if You diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes. If you give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, then I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on Egypt. For I am the Lord your healer. Jehovah Rophi, I'm the Lord your healer. And then it says that he goes on from there that they they came to Elam and when they got to Elam, there were 12 springs of water. There were 70 palms there, and they encamped by the water. Now, again, keep in mind that this is not here for their salvation, that God's not giving them rules here in order for them to do these rules, and you'll be saved. They've already been saved. They've already been brought out of Egypt, been brought through the waters of the Red Sea. This is not for their salvation. This is for their sanctification. What so many are lacking in their sanctification is obedience. And church, if you hear nothing else I say, hear me on this, because I want, you to, I want you to hear this. So many of us, we flounder in our walk with the Lord. We, we look around and we see other believers and we think, man, they seem so spiritual. They have this kindness about them. There's this genuineness. They, you can tell they love the Lord. Why don't I have that? And what so many of us are missing is obedience. It's so easy to come and attend a service and sit and listen without ever going and intending to do any of what God calls you to do. The Bible's not a book to entertain our minds. The Bible is God's word and his will for our lives. And we must use grace-driven, spirit-empowered effort to follow the Lord. One particular preacher this week said it this way in a sermon I listened to, progress in the Christian life and a good deal of its happiness and and blessedness is conditioned upon our faithful, dutiful obedience. 
We, we, we want to dismiss that and we say, duty, there's no place for duty in, in Christianity. We don't do things because we have to. We do things because we want to. We love the Lord. And, and there is truth in that. But let's be honest and let's just let the veil down of our hypocrisy for just a minute. We don't always feel like doing those things. There are times when, when you come in here, and I said it last week, and I had like two people agree with me, that there are times you come in and you don't feel like singing a song to the Lord because you've not spent any time with him in the week previously, and so you can't just turn that on. There are times when, when you don't feel like being obedient. And in those moments, duty becomes delight. We, we do those things out of duty, and what we find is that along the way, God changes our heart from, I have to do this, to it becomes a joy to do this. The preacher goes on, and he says, the blessed life is the life that's led by green pastures and quiet waters. The life that finds oasis in the wilderness is the obedient life. I want you to hear the words of Jesus as I bring this thing to a close. Jesus said in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you hear what he's saying? That if you want to display your love for Jesus, the way you do that is to obey his commands. And when you obey his commands... You find yourself loved by the Father. You find yourself loved by by the Son. You find yourself in a new depth of manifestation of God in your life. You, You walk in this thing, and it starts with obedience. You begin to know the Lord like you've never known him before because you begin to take his word and put it in practice. We're not doing these things in order to be saved, but because child of God in this room who's confessed Christ as Lord, you are saved on the merits of Christ alone, but because you are, we do these things to demonstrate we love him. Jesus said again in John 15, 9 through 11, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus here saying, is saying that, that obedience leads to abiding in Christ, and abiding in Christ is what produces and leads to joy in your life. So many of you are walking through this life, and you're wondering, why, why am I dealing with these, this anger, or I, I just don't feel fulfilled? And you're, you're spending none of your time pursuing obedience to the commands of, of God. You're spending most of your time watching sitcoms or shuttling kids back and forth. And there's very little, if any, pursuit of obedience. Jesus here says, let's take him at his word. If you love me and you keep my commandments, you'll find that you're abiding in me. And when you abide in me, you will find yourself filled with joy. It doesn't mean that we will find ourselves always happy and smiley and everything's going to go our way. It simply means that in the middle of whatever circumstance we're in, we will find that there is a presence of God because we are loving him 
by obeying him. It'd be easy to come to a text like this and, and walk away discouraged. It'd be easy. It's, it's hard for me to preach a text like this because there's so much potential for confusion. But it'd be easy for us to walk away discouraged because we think, you know, I am not, I am not unlike the Israelites. In fact, I'm so much like the Israelites, it, it scares me at times. I, I grumble all the time. I'm, I have this critical spirit, and I'm, I grumble, and I complain. I'm not content in the Lord. It'd be easy for us to walk away saying, I must be lost. I must be an unbeliever. But here's the gospel in there. Here's Christ in the text. We don't have to count on our ability to prevent ourselves from grumbling. Here in the wilderness, the Israelites grumble and complain. They look for shortcuts. We're going to see that later when God gives manna from heaven and they begin to, some of them go out and they try to take more than they need. They don't take God's word. What happened when Jesus went to the wilderness? Remember when Jesus went to the wilderness? He goes and he's there for 40 days fasting. For 40 days he's fasting without food. He's there for 40 days depending on God. And when Satan comes and offers him shortcuts, he takes none of them. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the, the, the mouth of God. He, Jesus never complains. He never grumbles. He, when, when, when Satan comes and says, Jesus, why don't you turn these stones to bread? Does your father even love you? Jesus never utters a word of grumbling. He trusts the heart of his father. And so here's the gospel in the text for us. We find ourselves just like Israel, grumbling and guilty before God. But Christ left heaven and came as a man, went into the wilderness, and did what they couldn't do so that if we would trust in him, we get that applied to our account. We don't have to worry about, I'm not perfect in this because Jesus was perfect. Our guilt is taken by Jesus if you're here today and you've never, you've heard me preach and largely I've been speaking to a room full of Christians, but maybe you're here and you're on the outside looking in and you say, I, I don't know about all this. I don't, I, I just, I don't know that I have this. I don't know if I believe any of this. Let me just encourage you. Let me challenge you to not walk out of here saying, well, the pastor said today that I shouldn't grumble, so I'll go out of here and not grumble, and that'll make me acceptable to God. You're not hearing this pastor say that. My challenge to you today is to admit the fact that you are a grumbler. Admit that there is a God that will hold you accountable and receive the fact that that God looked on you in your guilt and didn't leave you there, but he sent his son to do what you couldn't do and to pay the penalty that you deserve so that you might be set free. Receive the gospel today. Church, sometimes the music fades and we, we leave this room and we stop singing and we go out from here and we get in our cars and we go to our life and we go to work and we go to school and, and it's not anything like what happens in this room and it's in that moment that grace-driven effort leads us to the oasis. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you that you use the unwise and the simple and the the foolish of this world so that nobody gets the glory but you. Lord, take the preaching of this text. Lord, take it and use it according to your riches and mercy. God, use it to glorify your name, I pray. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to just reflect and respond. As Ethan plays, maybe, maybe you come to grips with the fact that you are indeed a grumbler. And you've stopped trusting the heart of your father. You've stopped believing that he's good. And today, maybe you just need to confess that to him. And ask him to help you to trust him all the more. Maybe you're here today and you're one of those people I talked about that you don't know the Lord. And today, you want to admit your guilt and receive the forgiveness that comes through Christ. Whatever it is, be obedient. I'm going to be seated down here on the front row. Love for you to come talk to me. If I can help you, I'd love to do that. But let's worship God as we obey Him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.